Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Jordan Rubin. And this is your SCOTUS sneak peek for the week of May 4th. And we're recording this episode on Friday, May 1st. Happy Friday, Jordan. Happy Friday. And so we got a big week coming up here on Monday, May 4th. The Supreme Court's going to kick off its historic two-week phone argument sitting. And those arguments will be live streamed to the public in yet another first. C-SPAN and other outlets will stream the feed live to the public. That's right. We've heard some jokes recently about the justices finally taking the leap into the 20th century or even the 19th century by taking advantage of this newfangled technology, the telephone. (laughs) Well, it seems like a century ago now, but the Supreme Court, April 28th, gave us some more detail about how the arguments are going to go down. Right. And most notably, the court said that instead of this usual free-for-all questioning that we're used to in the in-person arguments, the justices are going to take turns asking questions in order of seniority starting after the chief justice kicks it off. Right. Everything in seniority at the court. So after the chief justice, it will be Justice Thomas's turn, followed by Ginsburg, Breyer, Alito, Sotomayor, Kagan, Gorsuch, and then Kavanaugh will finish it all up. Right. And so after the chief, it's technically Justice Thomas's turn, but what do we (laughs) think is actually going to happen there? Yeah, so Justice Thomas famously does not ask questions at oral arguments, saying that the other justices ask too many, actually. I'm actually still recovering from the shock of last term at the oral argument in the Curtis Flowers case when Thomas asked a question at the end of the argument for the first time in many years, shocking pretty much everyone who's in the courtroom at the time. Uh, Ms. Johnson, did you, would you kind enough tell me whether or not you exercised any peremptories? I was not the trial lawyer. Right, I remember one time I was in the courtroom too, and he had he had gone 10 years without asking a question. So wow. well, it'll be interesting to see what, what he'll do this time around. Yeah, and I wonder though, for the justices who are actually more likely to ask questions, how being over the phone is going to change the dynamic here. Right. So in normal times, the justices frequently piggyback on other justices' questions, sometimes asking for clarity or pointing out some you know, important distinction that they see. Yeah. And well, one thing we know that's going to be similar to the way it's been happening in person is that the justices did say that they'll keep this new two-minute rule that they rolled out this term. That's right. This is the new guidance that was issued at the very start of the term, which generally gives advocates about two minutes of uninterrupted time at the top of their arguments. But then once the questions come in, I imagine it could get kind of weird with not being able to detect the visual cues from the justices over the phone, all the other things that you get from actually being in person. Well, that's right. And we chatted a little bit uh, about that with our guest on last week's podcast. But the court has asked an experienced advocate to be the test case here. That's Williams and Connolly's Lisa Blatt. Blatt's going to be making her 40th argument. And that's, of course, a lot for anybody. But notably, it's the most of any female advocate ever. Right. And she's got an insane record at the high court. Mm-hmm. It's 36 and 2 with one outstanding. Yeah, that's pretty good. And the, the outstanding <laughs> case is actually one that our listeners are familiar with. That was last term's argument in the Patrick Murphy case about the status of Native American reservation land in Oklahoma. And with Gorsuch recused, the justices couldn't decide that case. So they granted a new 
one, and that's why it's undecided for her. And this new one being the McGirt case that we talked about on our last episode that you mentioned, Kimberly, with Riaz Kanji. And so the McGirt case, as it turns out, is going to be argued in the second week of this phone argument session, but we'll be talking about that one again next week, and Blatt isn't involved in that one anymore. So it's just going to be one argument for her this session. So small world. But anyway, in Monday's argument, the Solicitor General's office also put up a female advocate, Erica Ross, and she'll be presenting her sixth SCOTUS argument and her third of this term alone. So an all-female lineup for the historic argument. Although it's sort of a misrepresentation for first-time court watchers who are going to be tuning into C-SPAN or wherever because there's only one other woman, Morgan Ratner, also from the Solicitor General's office, who's going to be arguing in this two-week session. Yeah, I mean, men tend to argue a majority of the cases at the Supreme Court. And we actually crunched the numbers a while ago for the term. And at the end of this May argument sitting, men will have argued 136 times and women 20. Wow. Well, it seems like the Solicitor General's office, in a way, is a way to make a small dent in that number, although uh, still a very small one. But let's get into all these cases that are going to be coming up. Kimberly, what are Ross and Blatt going to be arguing about in U.S. Patent and Trademark Office against Booking.com? Well, this is an IP case asking if generic terms like booking, which are generally ineligible for trademark protection, can become eligible simply by throwing a .com on the end of it. Oh, that's kind of interesting. So... What's the government's position in this case? Well, they're arguing that allowing these otherwise generic terms to be trademarked could actually spark a lot of excessive litigation and could trap some companies simply for using generic terms that, you know, companies have been using forever. Hmm. And what about Booking.com? Well, they say that not allowing these trademarks could actually put at risk some current ones, things like Home Depot, Waffle House, and even TV Guide. Wow. Well... They have my vote. We need to protect the Waffle House at all costs. Besides that potential waffle tragedy, what's the significance of this case? I think the case is probably most significant because it will kick off this historic session that we've been talking a lot about. Mm -hmm. It'll be the first opportunity for most Americans to get to see or at least hear the work of the Supreme Court as it happens. It does seem like compared to some of the more blockbuster cases that are going to be rolling out as this session progresses, that the justices are doing sort of a test run with this lower profile trademark case in case there's any technical kinks or anything they need to work out. And plus, on these first two days of this two-week session, they're just holding one argument each day. Well, Jordan, can you tell us about the argument that's going to be happening on Tuesday, which is USAID versus the Alliance for Open Society? This is a free speech case about what the government can require from foreign entities in order to get funding to combat HIV AIDS abroad. Okay, Jordan, this sounds really familiar. Right. And that's because back in 2013, the court said that the government couldn't require American organizations to have an explicit policy against prostitution and sex trafficking. Why does the government have that requirement? Right. So the government says that eliminating the sex trade is critical to combating the disease. Okay. But the groups counter that having an explicit policy like that can actually hinder their efforts to get help to those who need it the most. So if that was decided in 2013, what are we doing at the Supreme Court again? Well, the government no longer requires American entities to comply with this requirement, but it does require foreign entities who are affiliated with American ones to comply. 
Ah, gotcha. So what's at stake here? So the United States has committed almost $80 billion to combating HIV and AIDS abroad since 2003. So the government says it should be able to dictate how that money is used. But the Roberts Court has been pretty protective of free speech, so it seems like the government might have an uphill climb here. I think that's right, but at the same time, the court has also been reluctant to extend constitutional rights outside of the U.S. border, which we've seen in some cases recently, at least in other contexts. Oh, right. So earlier this term, they actually refused to allow the family of a Mexican national to sue a U.S. Border Patrol agent because the shooting actually was a cross-border shooting. Exactly. So we'll see how all those concerns uh, play out here in this context. On Wednesday, that's the last day of arguments for the week, we're going to start that day off with another repeat of sorts too, right, Kimberly? Yep, this is Little Sisters of the Poor versus Pennsylvania, where the Trump administration is attempting to expand exemptions for religious groups from the Affordable Care Act's contraceptive mandate. Now that definitely sounds familiar. (laughs) Yes, the contraceptive mandate has been the subject of a couple Supreme Court cases. And of course, that's the requirement that employees provide coverage for contraceptives, which some religious groups say forces them to go against their beliefs. Right. And what religious groups had to do to get that exemption was the question in Zubik versus Burwell, which the court heard a a few terms ago. Do you remember this one, Jordan? I think I do. That was the one where the court was basically like, yeah, this is hard. Uh, You guys arguing the case, just figure this one out, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it turns out they didn't figure it out. Ah. Uh, But in the meantime, the Trump administration comes in and they actually want to give the groups a broader exemption. So this is a challenge under that Administrative Procedures Act, right? The law that requires the executive to follow certain procedures when making laws, right? Yes, but two states, Pennsylvania and New Jersey, also say that the Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare, doesn't actually allow these broad exemptions, even if the Trump administration complies with the APA. And so how are uh, Pennsylvania and my great home state of New Jersey involved in this one again, remind me. Well, both states have state-funded health care systems that they say will have to pick up the tab if religious employers don't provide contraceptive coverage. Got it. So it's a money thing. Yet another theme of this week, right? Right. So nationwide, uh, somewhere between 70,000 and 125,000 women could lose their contraceptive coverage if these exemptions are actually put in place. And so to sort out this contraception issue, and naturally we'll uh, have a few guys arguing this one out. We got the Solicitor General himself, Noel Francisco, teaming up with SCOTUS legend Paul Clement of Kirkland and Ellis, a former Solicitor General who's representing the religious groups. And they'll be arguing against Pennsylvania's Chief Deputy Attorney General, Michael Fisher, Fisher making his high court debut against that uh, powerhouse combo on the other side. That's hardly fair. Uh, But Francisco is actually going to be arguing two cases this sitting, arguing as well in one of the Trump subpoena cases next week. Right. And that's somewhat unique, but not totally unheard of. I mean, Clement actually, for example, did that earlier this term, I think. That's right. And um, I'm wondering again, what were those numbers versus male versus female, 136 to 20? Hmm. It was a large ratio for sure. I think that's right. So... (laughs) Uh, Finishing off the week, we got Barr against American Association of Political Consultants. Hmm, what's going on here? Robocalls. Ah, okay, so which side wants fewer robocalls? Who am I rooting for? Uh, That would be Attorney General William Barr. Ever heard of him? Okay. 
Good. Yeah, done. What's my position? What do I want? So the law at issue here is the Telephone Consumer Protection Act. And since the 90s, that's a law that's prohibited robocalls, although it has some narrow exceptions. And the government had added a new one to allow robocalls for those trying to collect federal debt. Ah, oh, of course. Of right. Course. So the plaintiffs here are political groups that want to do robocalls to conduct polling, not to collect federal debt. So you see how this issue gets teed up here. Right. So they're making a claim that this is content-based restriction on speech and therefore unconstitutional, right? Exactly. But they actually go further than that. And they say that this government debt exemption can't be severed from the rest of the act. And so the whole law needs to be struck down. Okay, so that's similar to the argument made in CELA law, which is the case regarding the constitutionality of the CFPB. Mm -hmm, That's right. And we also see severability issue in the big Obamacare case that's going to be one of the ones headlining next term. So how does the government defend the government debt exception, except to say, we're the government, we make the rules? (laughs) Yes, and they're here to help. Um, So it says it's not based on the content of the speech, but rather the borrowing relationship between the parties. That's the government's argument. Well, being trapped in my house, I really don't want any more robocalls. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's something that uh, we all as Americans can agree on. Uh, Well, except maybe debt collectors. But anyway, that does it for the cases in the Supreme Court's first week in this historic phone argument session. I'm looking forward to seeing how this one goes, or at least uh, hearing how it goes, I guess. And we've got a preview of all the May arguments for you to follow along at home at news.bloomberglaw.com. Yeah, Kimberly uh, wrote a nice story on this one. You guys want to check this out. Well, we'll be back next week with another sneak peek, including in the subpoena cases for the president's financial records. And until then, you can stay up to date with the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. Hey there, I'm Kyle Trigstad, politics editor for Bloomberg Government. And I'm Greg Giroux, senior elections reporter for Bloomberg Government. Check out our podcast, Down Ballot Counts. Each week, Greg and I will be breaking down all of those down-ballot elections that make up the fight for the U.S. Congress. Listen and subscribe to Down Ballot Counts from Bloomberg Government wherever you get your podcasts.